1: of LifeWay, Dr. Tom Rayner, our CEO, and Dr. Ed Stetzer, my boss, uh, let me say thank you for your faithful commitment to love Jesus well and to teach and train men and women to love Jesus, to love his gospel, and to advance his mission across the nation. Can you believe that that's what we get to do with our lives? I can't imagine a greater enterprise that we could be involved in than loving Jesus, loving his gospel, and advancing his mission across the globe. And so I'm grateful for you. I'm a huge, enormous, unabashed fan of Southeastern Seminary and your president, Dr. Danny Akin. Uh, he has been influencing my life. I distinctly remember the very first sermon I ever heard from him as a college student at the Baptist College of Florida 15 years ago now, and he has continued to influence In fact. Today, I serve on staff at Fairview Church in Nashville, where Dr. Aiken's oldest son, John Aiken, is our pastor, our senior pastor, and I get to serve alongside him, and so we get to have Dr. Aiken in town a couple of times a year to preach for us. I don't think he comes for John or the church, I think he comes for those grandkids, but nonetheless, we're glad to have him. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29, the the, uh, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Now, while you're turning there, uh, one of my best friends in the world is Dr. Nathan Finn, and so last night... Nathan and I hung out, ate some dinner together, and watched baseball because that's what good friends do. If you don't do that, then your friendship is incomplete, so you need to make sure you hang out, eat good food, watch baseball. That's what makes friendships good. So anyway, we hung out last night until the moment where we became sort of giddy like preteen girls at a Justin Bieber concert when we found out that the trailer had just been released ...for the upcoming Avengers movie. How many of you saw that last night? The tra- yeah, See, I'm not alone. Because at heart, we're all nine-year-old little boys and girls who desperately desire to watch the newest superhero movie. We love those sort of movies. Last month, a major sort of cinematic moment happened when, when it was sort of revealed that um, Matt Damon was coming back to once again be Jason Bourne. And everybody said, amen, that we're going to get another Jason Bourne movie, Right. Why? Because deep within who we are, we love superhero and secret agent sort of movies. I do, right? I love the, the Born Supremacy, the, all the Born trilogy. I even like the New movie without Matt Damon, just not quite as well as you know I like Matt Damon. We love Ethan Hawke in the Mission Impossible series. And of course, we love James Bond. I mean, there's something about secret agent sort of movies that that really does it for us, right? I mean, the the guy who sort of comes into the country unaware, who accomplishes his mission, and then, is you know, the black helicopter swoops in, picks him up, and takes him out back to the home country. Superhero, I'm sorry, secret agent concepts make for great movies, but they make for awful churches. And I want us to talk about that this morning. I want us to sort of push back against the idea that the church is called to function kind of like a secret agent in society, undercover, accomplishing its mission until sort of God swoops in and snatches us away to take us out of here because this is no good and he has something better for us. And I want us to look at Jeremiah chapter 29, specifically Jeremiah 29, because in Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to a group of exiles these exiles had been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And in a sense, you and I are living as exiles today. First of all, we're exiles because we've been exiled from the garden. God designed the world as he wanted it. He designed it perfectly. He said of it, it is good. He created humanity and he said, it is very good. And then, of course, humanity sinned and was Uh, judged for their sin and was removed from the garden. And because of that, you and I are aliens and strangers. We're sojourners. We're foreigners in the midst of a culture that doesn't understand who we are and, and what we believe. So we're exiles in that sense. But even here in our own country, we're increasingly understanding our role as exiles as culture by and large pushes back against biblical Christianity. And so I think The church needs to recover a theology of exile, and that's what I want us to look at today. I want us to see in this group of exiles ourselves, and I want us to hear five characteristics of the missionary church on exile that the prophet Jeremiah writes to this group, and I want us to ask ourselves whether or not we're committed to leading the churches that we are and will lead to embrace the same So if you've got your Bibles, let's look together at Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to start in verse 4 and read down uh, through verse 14. And I'm kind of old school. I like to honor God's Word by standing. And so if you would, let's stand together and honor God's Word as we read, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles that I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and bear daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city that I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them. And this is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you, and I will confirm my promise concerning you, to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, this is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place that I have deported you from. Have a seat. For far too long, the church of Jesus Christ, the church that I lived in, that I grew up in, and I I was a, a military kid, and then my dad retired from the Air Force to, to go into the ministry. In fact, we spent one semester here on campus at Southeastern when I was 11 or 12 years old, a long time ago, and, and uh, many theological perspectives ago. It wasn't the place that it is today. Uh, but we grew up all over the country and, and even across the world. I uh, was a little child, my very first memories are as being a part of a church pastored by IMB missionaries in the Philippines. And in all the churches that I grew up in, the mantra that I heard over and over was, we sort of tolerate where we are until Jesus can sort of return and get us out of here. It's become the pervasive view through which we see the world around us. And because of it, now I don't mean this to follow in every way, but we've become a little bit like modern day Gnostics in that we've argued that physical is bad and spiritual is good and let's just Hope that we can sort of last in this physical world until Jesus can take us away and we can get out of here. We wrote songs about it. It's been so pervasive in our culture and our theology. There's an old Southern gospel song called The Old Gospel Ship. It says, I'm going to take a trip in that good old gospel ship. I'm going far beyond the sky. I'm going to shout, shout, and sing until all heaven rings when I bid this old world goodbye. A couple of years ago, Building 429 had the number one song in contemporary Christian music. And they said in their song, all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong. And we've built this theology, this worldview that says that this is not home and we just are sort of biding our time until we can go. And in that sense, we're just like the exiles that Jeremiah was writing to. They didn't want to be in Babylon. Babylon was overrun with hedonism and ungodly perspectives and attitudes. It was governed by horrifically ungodly leadership. And their thought in their mind was, we're just here for a short time. We're going to be here for a short time, and then we're going to go back home to Jerusalem. In fact, there were prophets among them who were teaching them that they were only going to be there for two years or less. And so they thought, if we can just sort of isolate ourselves, huddle together as a community and bear with this for just two short years, then we can get out of Dodge and we can go back, to home, go back home where we're more comfortable. And in the midst of that, Jeremiah writes, and he begins to give them instruction for how to live as exiles. He says, first of all, that you and I, as, as in a sense exiles, like the Babylonian exiles, need to understand that our presence as exiles is a result of God's good plan. Notice verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to the exiles that I have deported... From Jerusalem to Babylon, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city that I have deported you to. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, was pushing back at this idea that they were in Babylon as a result of God's displeasure and in a sense that they had to sort of just avoid any contact with the natives, if you will. God wants them to understand that they are in exile because He desires them to be there in that time at, and, and at that, in that place at That time for those specific people. You and I need to have the same perspective on the culture that we find ourselves in. For far too long, the church of Jesus Christ has done little more than complain about the culture that we find ourselves in. Rejecting any desire to sort of accept or engage with the culture. We've pointed fingers, we've yelled, we've thrown things, and we've tried to isolate ourselves from the culture at large. You and I need to acknowledge that we do believe that God is both uh, sovereign and that in His providence He has desired for us to be here in this place at this time with these people and we we need to begin to view them through the eyes of God as part of His good creation among whom He wishes to do His good redemptive work. And so we're here in this place and at this time with these people because God desires for us to be here. And for far too long in the church when we think along those lines we've argued that God wouldn't allow us to To experience this kind of pain. God wouldn't put his church through that kind of pain, which by by the way, is really an opinion only held by those of us who live in the Western world in the first place. But nonetheless, we've argued that God wouldn't try and allow his church to go through pain. He wouldn't accomplish his purposes through painful means. And in doing so, we've ignored the totality of scripture, none more serious and more important to our faith than the life of Jesus himself in Acts chapter four. The apostles have just been tried in front of the judges and they've come back and they're now giving a report of what happened. And in this report... They say in verses 27 and 28, For in fact, in this city, in Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, have assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They had this understanding that everything that happened to Jesus on the cross happened because God, in his good will, purposed that it would occur far before the world even began. Listen to me, you're training to be men and women who go out and advance the gospel, who serve and lead the church. Understand that throughout all of of biblical history and church history since then, that God has seen it fit to work through painful experiences, painful moments, painful circumstances to do his greatest redemptive work. And you and I cannot begin to think that we'll be any different. We need to acknowledge that God has us in this place, at this time, for these people, and even if He wishes to do difficult things through us to cause His purposes to come to be, so be it. May God be glorified in our life, and even, if necessary, in our death. May we be a people who deeply love Jesus and the Gospel to the point that we're willing to experience great pain so that God, as He has done throughout history, can bring about His redemptive purposes. Death has to precede resurrection Pain almost always precedes his redemptive purposes. Our presence as exiles is a result of God's good plan. Don't think otherwise. Secondly, as we walk through the passage, understand that our responsibility as exiles is to integrate into society rather than escape from society. Verses 5 and 6. This culture, these exiles had sort of abandoned the culture at large. They had isolated themselves, marginalized themselves on the fringes of Babylonian culture. And the prophet speaks to them and says, stop it, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons, daughters, so on and so forth. The idea that the prophet is trying to communicate to the people of Israel who were in exile is that you need to make this your home. Stop pining for something else and make this your home embrace these people love this city raise your children here to love this city raise your children to have friends who are not like you who are part of the culture at large far too often the church of jesus christ that i grew up in and the church that many of you grew up in has been guilty of the same behavior that the exiles in Babylon were guilty of. Namely, our approach to culture is to complain about it. We complain about the state of society, the government, the education and health the, jo- uh, the jobs that we have or that we don't have, the president or Congress and so on. We treat this life as if it is exile and in a sense it is. This is correct. There's a better day coming. God will in essence restore us to our homeland. But until then, we're not called to look for ways out of this culture. We're called to establish lives in the culture and live as missionaries in the midst of a foreign people and a foreign place. You and I cannot live as if we're trying to escape life. We need to embrace the present, live in the present as if we are residents of the kingdom of God. And this is so difficult for the church today. But listen, the simplest way I know to say it is this. If you and I are called to live as residents of the kingdom of God, what it means to live as residents is to live now as we will live then. You and I are called to live embedded in culture now as we will live then when Christ returns to establish His homeland, to consummate His kingdom, to bring all things to be that He would have them to be. This is this is what it means to reflect the character of Jesus. It's important that you and I understand that when we do this, when we embed ourselves into culture, live as if this was our home, embracing those around us and exam, uh, giving an example of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not just obeying Scripture, we're mirroring Jesus' behavior Himself. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says, Make your own attitude the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man... And then it goes on to talk about how he brought the gospel through his life. Listen, the model of Jesus is the model that you and I need to embrace in our own lives. Not trying to understand culture and life as a means or a tool to be used for you and I to seek our own gain. But recognizing that this is the place that God has called us to for this time in our life and embracing the city, the community, the neighborhoods that we find ourselves in, loving those who are around us, and declaring and displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. One of the ways in which we do this is to make sure absolutely certain that we have genuine friends who don't know Jesus. I remember for the longest time growing up in the church this church that had sort of an isolation perspective on the world, an escapism theology, being told Micah, you need to know lost people so that you can share the gospel with them, but you can't ever really have friends who are lost people. I mean, you can't do that. I think we were terrified that they were sort of going to rub off on us, like stain me somehow. Hear me when I say the gospel of Jesus Christ I'm confident in it. I'm confident in its ability to transform your life, and I'm confident in its ability to keep you safe in in the gospel itself. You and I have got to make it a practice in our lives to have genuine relationship with people who do not know Jesus. And hear me when I say this very clearly. We do not have relationships with lost people so that we can get them saved. We have genuine relationships with lost people because they're created in the image of God. God has transformed us into a people who accept and love all people. And because we're friends, we share the gospel. When we become friends with people so that we share the gospel, we become nothing more than used car salesmen using bait-and-switch methodology to turn friendship into a tactic to get to them to the point pointed place that we want them to, be, to to get to. Friendship has to be genuine. It has to be authentic. And because we're friends, we're going to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed our lives. So how many friends do you have that don't know Jesus? How many friends do you have that are embracing lifestyles that are far from God? Homosexuals or Muslims, liars, Jehovah's Witnesses. Not just the guy you sort of blow by giving them an, an evangelistic you know, message as you run past them, hit and run evangelism. Who do you deeply know that you can live with in community and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is what it means to integrate into society, to love society, and to declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ to the culture we find ourselves in. The third thing that he says that the church has got to do if we understand ourselves as missionaries is we've got to understand that our presence in our culture... And our goals within culture should lead to the success of our city. Notice verse 7. He says, Seek the welfare of the city that I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. This word welfare here, you all know it. You've probably heard this passage preached multiple times before. The word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom, right? And shalom means? Come on, Hebrew scholars. It means peace, right? Now... What does peace mean? It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. I think oftentimes when we hear the word peace, we think it means the absence of conflict. Shalom is deeply embedded, not just in biblical culture, it's deeply embedded in sort of this Middle Eastern context. Uh, those of you, I love, I love, I've got a lot of friends who are Muslim, and I love to work with, with them and, uh, both in the U.S. and overseas. And, um, and so. One of the things that always happens when I hang out with my friends who are Muslims is they greet me using an Arabic greeting, right? I I walk up to them and they say, Salaam Alaikum, and I respond, Alaikum Salaam, right? It's It's an Arabic word that's reflective of the same idea that we see in the Hebrew, Shalom Salaam. It's this idea of peace. It means more than the absence of conflict. It means the full, holistic blessing of God upon a people and a place. And so this is the idea that we see here in verse 7, as he says, seek the shalom, seek the blessing of God, the holistic goodness of God on the place that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now that sounds reasonable, it sounds good, until we realize that the prophet was saying this to a group of exiles deeply embedded in a hedonistic culture governed by ungodly leaders. And he says to them in the midst of a hedonistic culture governed by ungodly leaders, pray that God would bless them. Pray that God's favor would be upon them. Now listen to me, church. When I think about, I guess we're not a church, I'm used to preaching to churches. Listen to me, seminary students and faculty and staff. (laughs) When I think about the American church and how we engage with the culture, there is no way in which we push back against the idea of bringing shalom than the way in which we engage the political realm. There is nothing the church is more guilty of than finding those with whom we disagree politically and crucifying them, believing ourselves to be justified because they somehow don't embrace the same things we do. It's one thing to disagree with political positions. It's another thing to crucify character, personhood, and the families of those we disagree with. My gosh, someday God is going to judge us for our social media use in horrific ways. The idea here is that you and I pray for and actively pursue the Shalom of our city, praying that God would deeply and richly bring His blessing on the lives of those we find around us. This means we care about the condition of the city that we live in, we care about the people who inhabit the city we 're involved in working to improve the city, we pray on behalf of the city, first Timothy chapter two, Paul speaking to his son in the faith. Timothy says, first of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This idea of seeking shalom is constantly being challenged in the American church, and it will increasingly be challenged. You and I have a responsibility to lead the churches that we're in and that we lead to love deeply the city even when the city doesn't love us back. By the way, when we deeply love the city, seeking the blessing of God for the city, and it doesn't love us back, it sounds to me like we're behaving just like Jesus does in the Gospel. This is the reflection of Christ. So how do we seek the shalom of our city? It's little things like cleaning up litter in the city. It can be seeking to improve educational standards for children. It can be helping work to eradicate sex trafficking. It can be bigger things like praying for and advocating on behalf of government officials and authorities. And of course, the greatest thing we can do is begin to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him constantly scattering evangelistically the gospel everywhere we go among everyone we find ourselves with. The fourth thing that he says to them is this. He says, not only should you recognize that you're there because God has a plan for you to be there, not only should you integrate in society rather than escape from society, not only should you seek the shalom or the success of your city, but he says, you should resist the culture you find yourself in, but your resistance should not be primarily political in nature. Notice verses 8 and 9. This was the part of the passage that stumped me when I was beginning to study this passage. He says, for this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your deboners deceive you And don't listen to the dreams that you elicit from them, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. And as if that wasn't strong enough, Jeremiah adds, this is God's declaration. In other words, get this. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Right? This is his way of saying you need to understand this. The prophets among you are deceiving you. Don't listen to them. So my question when I was studying this was, how are the prophets deceiving them? What were the prophets saying that was so problematic? The more I studied, the more I found two messages coming from the prophets that were extremely problematic that God was pushing back against. The first was that they would only be there for two years. God specifically, clearly pushes back against that in verse 10. He says, when 70 years in Babylon are complete, then I will come for you. You're not just going to be there a short time. Stop living your life looking to something else. Make this your home. Plant yourself there. But the second thing that he was pushing back against, that the prophets were advocating for, was resistance to the government. They, he, the prophets were calling this, this cadre, this community of Jewish exiles, to sort of revolt, in a sense, through political means against the political process. Now, The danger in this is not that they would engage with the political process. No, the reverse is true, I pray, that deeply gospel-saturated people would absolutely engage the political process. The danger was that the Jewish people would turn the political process into their Messiah. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is pushing back against the Jewish exile, saying to them, don't make revolt your hope. Don't make it your Messiah. Don't make it your Savior. Hear me when I say this. You and I are in churches, you are leading churches, and you will lead churches who are constantly being pushed to make the political process in America their hope. Watch this over the next year. See how many times people in your church are more passionate about voter guides, and elections than they are that the people of West Africa or Central Asia or South Asia would be transformed by the gospel. Ask yourself this question, how many people in your church are far more passionate about closing the borders to outsiders than they are about crossing the borders with the gospel of Jesus Christ? We have turned the political process into a functional Messiah, all the while endorsing our behavior by claiming that it is somehow gospel-centered. False. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Satan himself is advocating political messiahs for us. Hear me when I say this clearly. Electing the right president will not fix our country. Changing our laws will not fix our country. More committed military service will not fix our country. Jesus Christ, through the gospel, is the only hope for not just our country, but the planet. In our our culture today, we have a grave danger, and there is very little that stirs up our affections like political processes. But the far more effective methodology, hear me, we've been through our churches trying for decades to use political processes to fix our country, and it's not gotten us anywhere but angry. You and I need to recognize that people rarely respond to top-down enforcement of morality, spirituality, or faith. That the gospel will transform our culture when it is a bottom-up movement, when you and I take the gospel to our neighbors who are changed by the gospel, who take it to their neighbors, who are changed by the gospel, who take it to their neighbors. And hear me when I say this clearly. Rarely do we see culture change when laws are, are changed to force people to believe the gospel. But always do we see laws changed when the gospel changes people who change the laws. We want to change the country, we need to advance the gospel. The final thing that we need to see here is that you and I, as we work toward prosperity, as we work toward restoration, as we work toward shalom, we are foreshadowing God's ultimate work of restoration. We see it in verses 10 down through verse 14. As we look at the passage, we see God promising that as we seek the welfare of the city and we seek the restoration of the city, that we seek the shalom, He will ultimately bring shalom for us ourselves. In other words, our action to this end is a picture of God's own action of all that He's created, restoring all that He's created back to the way it was in the beginning. Let me just stop for just a second and let's think through this. For far too long, we've had this idea that everything around us is bad. All the physical around us is bad. We just can't wait for Jesus to get us out of here. And we say things, when a person sins, we say things like, well, they're just being human. Don't let that myth ever be perpetuated again. Listen, when God created the world, He said it was good. When God created humanity as human beings, physical and spiritual, He said of us, it is very good. Sin entered the equation. Death, sickness, and the like followed it. So when you and I engage in sinful behavior, we are not, in fact, being human. We are being subhuman. We are being less than human. God, in the Gospel, is working to redemptively cause us to be the best kind of human. Exactly as He designed us to be. So when you and I, we work toward restoration, what we are in fact doing is modeling both the Gospel and the Kingdom of God in anticipation for Jesus' ultimate return to establish His ultimate Kingdom, making everything right and bringing eternal shalom into our homes and into our lives. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a helicopter to take us out of Dodge. It is a complete total, ultimate transformation as God completely consummates his kingdom and allows us to be a part of it. Now, it would be problematic for me if I just skipped over the most popular verse in this text, and that is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration, plans for your welfare, not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. It's it's a very popular passage in The church today and it seems like our interpretation of the passage is as if in God's throne room there's this whiteboard and God has on his whiteboard Micah freezes name somewhere and out along beside Micah freezes name is his his map his pathway and if I'll just obey him and do right I get to follow God's pathway and at the end it's the you know it's the uh, leprechaun at the end of the rainbow with my big pot of gold. Which is a horribly flawed interpretation of this text. Why? First of all, God wasn't writing this to a person, He was writing it to a people. Not only was he writing it to a people, he was writing it to a people that he was pleading with to be faithful missionaries in the midst of exile. The the point of verse 11 is not to confirm your personal prosperity plan if you'll just do what God wants you to do. The point of the plan is to push us that, that if we will be faithful as missionaries and if we will mirror the kingdom and the gospel, God will return and make everything right. The point is to continue to push us to persevere And to trust that in the end, God is going to restore, listen, God is going to restore not just you, not just us, but God is going to restore all things. This is so important. Don't miss this. God is going to restore even His created order. You say, wait a minute, Micah, doesn't the Bible say that God's going to burn up all things? Yeah, but I would challenge you that in Scripture, God's references to burning things almost always refers to purification, not destruction. God is going to come and make all things right. And and I want to close by reading Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18 that speaks to this. Paul said, For I consider that the suffering of this present time they're not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's Son to be revealed. Notice this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. Notice that the creation and God's children all relieved of their bondage. Verse 22 For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And it is in this hope that we're saved. So, as I close, you and I are called according to Scripture. To join with all of God's creation, groaning for the ultimate completion of all of His kingdom work and activity. We're called to gather with creation and groan for that moment, but not so that we can ignore all that's around us and just look longingly into the stars waiting for the day that God's going to snatch us out of here. No, our groaning should instead lead to a passion for the mission of the Gospel, working to both declare and display the Gospel of Jesus Christ until that time that He comes and does perfectly what you and I are so pitifully trying to accomplish. You men and women are leading and will lead great churches all the way across the country and many of you around the world. Some of you in this room make very possibly give your lives for the gospel be encouraged with this hope that it is that ultimate consummation of all things that compels us because it is in that hope that we were saved thank you jesus let me pray for us jesus i thank you for the hope of the gospel that you do not leave us that you're not some cosmic watchmaker who spins the watch and lets it go that You, in Your sovereignty, in Your goodness, in Your grace, You are working among us, causing among us Your purposes, Your redemptive purposes. We're working in our lives to bring us out of the cesspool that is our sin and our death, redeeming us to become adopted sons and daughters of King Jesus. And You call us, God, to join You on that mission. There is no greater enterprise to which we can give our lives than that of loving Jesus, loving the Gospel, and advancing the mission of God among the nations. I pray, God, for every man and every woman in this room that they would give their lives to that end. And that we would be driven compulsively with the hope that as we model the Gospel and the Kingdom of God, as we slowly haltingly try to bring shalom in this place that we do so knowing that someday you are coming and you will do perfectly what we cannot. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level including doctoral studies, dot s-e-b-t-s dot e-d-u Recover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.